0: Out there, rock and rollers, welcome to the 126th episode of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. The Wolf, and I will be joined as always by my colleague, cohort, and partner in crime, Gary Action Jackson from the East Coast of the U.S. And we appreciate you all listening to our Dire Straits debut album episode on our 125th show. Mark Knopfler is a genius of a guitar player, fantastic songwriter. And I really dig his voice. It really fits the stories he tells and the songs that he writes and sings. And we got some great feedback on that one. So I hope if you missed that one that you'll get a chance to go back and give that a listen. But this week we wanted to dive really way back down into the well. And we do a lot of albums around big anniversaries. And there's an album having a 40th anniversary really this week as we're releasing this show. It was a band that was huge in America and huge on MTV in the early 80s. And that's Men at Work. Their album Cargo is turning 40. And Men at Work shot to superstardom all over the world thanks to their first business-as-usual album, which had the hits Who Can It Be Now and the enormous success of the song Down Under. But it didn't take off in America right away. In fact, it took a while before they could even get the record released in America. So they kind of had success around the world, building, building, through 81 into 82. This album, Cargo, was supposed to come out in 82. But because it took so long to finally get the first one released in America, it got pushed back. It got pushed back till April of 1983, and even the singles didn't come out till late 1983, because the singles, like Be Good Johnny, were still on the charts in America in early '83. So they kind of squelched this one for a while, they sat on it for a while, while they got nominated for Grammys for Best New Artist, which they won, while they opened up for Fleetwood Mac, while they toured all over the world. So we thought it would be a fun way to go back and revisit some of our childhood, because look, in 1983... When we were like 9, 10 years old, that's when MTV ruled the world, and it was a big part of our lives, and we're buying our first records and getting into bands like Duran Duran and The Police and Michael Jackson. It was a ways before we were going to get into the hard rock and the heavy metal and the prog rock that kind of dominate what we listen to these days. So it's a more innocent time, and it was fun. Videos were fun. They weren't always so serious. Yeah, they might tell a story, but you can see the band – taking the piss out of themselves, and having a good time. And I think that's what came through with Men at Work. It wouldn't last a whole lot longer than 1983, but we'll get into all that on the show. Now, first, we need to take care of a little bit of business. As usual, we like to mention that we are members of the Pantheon Podcast Network, a network of about 100 great shows of all different musical genres. Something in there for everyone, I guarantee you. You can follow them at Pantheon Pods, or you can go to www.pantheonpodcast.com and check out our roster. We just added more than half a dozen new shows, and some of them are really great, uh, especially uh, "Grown Up Rock with our buddy Sonny Poonie. you got to check them out if you haven't before. And we always give a shout-out to our incredible sponsor, rarevinyl.com. They're based in the U.K., folks, but they ship albums, singles, CDs, posters, Tour programs, whatever they have out of the quarter of a million things they have in stock, they ship it all over the world. They take great care to get it. They take care of it. They catalog it really well. And then on their website, rarevinyl.com or EIL.com, you can search and find anything that you want. And then if you use the code PODCAST, P O D C A S T, you can save 10% off your orders. So you are looking for that Dire Straits album that you never had, or you want some kind of rare men at work goodie. Go to rarevinyl.com, use the code podcast, those folks will take care of you. And use the code podcast, hey, maybe it knocks off your shipping. So it doesn't matter if you're from Alaska or Australia, go to rarevinyl.com, use code podcast, save yourself 10%. Now back to Ben at work, look, Colin Hay was kind of their main guy, he's the lead singer. Kind of has a funky right eye, but they play that up in the videos, you know. And Greg Ham was a multi-instrumentalist, playing keyboards, sax, flute harmonica, backup singing, kind of doing everything they need to make this sound special. And you never really heard anyone else who sounded exactly like Men at Work. And once they were gone, they were gone. And the sound was gone. You never heard anything like that ever again. But they were an outsized portion of our early musical development, especially for me. I think two of the first three cassettes I ever owned were Men at Work. They were all over MTV. They were on the radio. And they were fun, and they told us about a place, Australia, that for folks in Midwest America could not have been any further away, and yet it seemed familiar thanks to their videos and thanks to their songs. So this is going to be a longer one. Let's go ahead and dive in. We are talking about Men at Works cargo as it turns 40, right here on The Wolf. Yeah, so I actually was inspired to go out and get this on CD. Okay. Because they do have the remastered edition with new tracks. And, you know, tracks that they wrote at the time, not just B-sides, but stuff that they would play live that they just never put on an album. And it was like, wow, man, new men at work after all these years? That's awesome. What I wouldn't have done to have this back in the day. Because I got to tell you, in 1982, 83... Men at Work were probably about my favorite band in the world, thanks to MTV.
1: Hmm.
0: <laughs> I mean, it was like them and Duran Duran were like neck and neck.
1: So when you wanted to do this, like it was kind of like, well, that's kind of random. Right. And then, I don't know why I thought about this, but I had this on vinyl when I was a kid. You did? Yeah, I did. And it it brought that back. I don't know where it is. It's It's been lost to time now. I've moved a couple of times since then. But yeah, I had it. There was something that struck me about this record that I went out and either got it for Christmas or my birthday or something uh-huh. back in the day. Yeah, this this was a huge record and these guys were huge and watching that Colin Hay documentary it was kind of it's kind of sad cuz they just couldn't they just couldn't hold it together.
0: Yeah, you know, it's, you know, some people are built to be super-duper stars, you know, like Whitney Houston or whomever. And then there's, you know, some people are like, yeah, we like playing our pub, you know, down in Melbourne here. It's uh, it's pretty fun. And then, uh, oh, our first record sells 15 million copies? Wow, okay, well, then I guess we have to go around the world now and, and then see what we've got left. Yeah, I mean, MTV started when we were, like, eight and by the time we were nine it was the biggest thing in the whole world. I mean it started in 81 but by 82 it was like the biggest thing in the whole world especially for kids our age who were into music. And then by 83 everything was going through MTV. And yeah I I, I didn't ever have LPs until I was older. I had cassettes because you could play those in the car, you could play them in a Walkman. For my tenth birthday in nineteen eighty three I got a boom box. Right? Ooh, what? That was basically, it was a big radio with a cassette player on it. Mm-hmm. And I remember my first five, I think this was the order of the first five cassettes I ever got. It was Michael Jackson's Thriller, mm-hmm. Men at Work Business as Usual, Men at Work Cargo, Duran Duran's first album, because they re-released Is There Something I Should Know? okay and put that on the american version of the first grand Duran. hello pantheon
2: podcast listeners christian swain here to tell you more about my experience with raycon earbuds our family now has three pairs of raycon earbuds around the house and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price and yes she loves them now if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of raycons
0: cassette and then the fifth one was uh synchronicity by the police okay and then after that it's a little hazy as to what (laughs) may have come next i know the car's (laughs) heartbeat city was in there somewhere but i don't know what year that was but the thing was about men at work and those two albums business as usual and cargo even though they came out two years apart that's not really the way it worked in america right you know it, it was like They made their first record in 1981. Between Who Can It Be Now and Down Under, they've got hits all over the world, but the U.S. record company were dragging their feet like, eh, no, I don't have any hits. I don't hear any hits on there. I don't think that's any good. We're not going to do it. And then, you know, eventually the momentum builds, and, like, the president, I think, passed on it twice, and then eventually the A&R man's like, no, this Down Under song's pretty good. I'm going to override the president, and we're going to go ahead and (laughs) release it here in America. We're going to release these odd videos that they have. And then, boom. Mega hit, goes to number one in America for like 15 weeks, the record. Something yeah. crazy like that. Down Under goes to number one. Who can it be now goes way up the charts. It's like, what were you waiting for? What were you not hearing? And I get it because these guys are quirky and weird. You know, I mean, and their videos, I think they're great. I think their videos were kind of what MTV were all about. And they needed each other. In like eighty one and eighty two and eighty
1: three. Yeah, I think that the, it was definitely apparent that they didn't take themselves too seriously, which yeah. I think was a was a refreshing difference from a lot of people. Where you know the the video was this over the top artistic. Okay, come on, stop it now. But one thing they pointed out was that in. The record business, I guess if you weren't from Great Britain, and you were foreign and you weren't from Great Britain, they didn't want to talk to you. Like, Australia, But I remember thinking, like, Australia was like this place on the other side of the world that was the coolest thing ever. And to me, it had just as much attraction as Great Britain as far as a faraway place that maybe someday I would go to. And they had all these great places to see and the Sydney Opera House. And the other thing I didn't remember was at that time also – we talked about David Bowie's Let's Dance, and he mm-hmm. filmed all of those videos in Australia. That's right. So that was, you You kind of had that visual of this, you know, the Sydney Opera House and the bridge and all of those places that I always wanted to go to.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I, I understand. They get, I get how the UK, you got to be from England, you got to be from the UK, just like the right. Beatles, the Stones, the Led Zeppelins, the, you know, all the pop bands from all over the years. I get it. I understand that bit of it. But Australia, although it's really far away from the Northern Hemisphere and, you know, and England and United States of America, it's still, it's very much, it's like England light. It's, it's you know, right. it, it, it's, it's an old English colony and a bit of a prison colony for a while too, but it's its own continent. No, it's not a huge place. I mean, I don't even know if the population of Australia was 20 million back when, when this first came out. It was around that uh, at the time. But, you know, they, they kind of they look like English people. They speak close. You know, the accent's a little different. <laughs> and that was another thing. When you're a kid in America and everybody basically talks like an American, an English accent, an Australian accent, it's kind of hard to tell those apart mm-hmm. when you're young, when you're a young American. Yeah.
1: And and the, the whole thing about how Hayes' family came over from Scotland in, what was it, like 67, something mm-hmm. like that. That was the same story as the young brothers, Angus and Malcolm. You know, the uh, dad just came home one day and he's like, you know what? I'm tired of all of this. I'm yeah. tired of the rain. I'm tired of the cold. You can get to Australia for like 10 bucks or something through this program. We're yeah. going to go. And to have this, you know, to go from this place that's doom and gloom to everybody's at the beach, everybody's wearing flip flops this is fantastic, had to be... Well, I mean, it was life-changing for Colin Hay.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And he talks about going from black and white into Technicolor. Yeah. It's almost like going to California kind of thing, you know? Right, right. I mean, right. and, you know, look, England and Scotland are still, you know, recovering from the war. There's all stuff bombed out and everything. And not to mention, it's still very much a class society. You're a laborer, that's it, you're a laborer. Mm-hmm. Your labor. Go to your laborer pub, go to your laborer house, hang out with your laborer friends, you know don't associate with those with your betters you know and your betters won't treat you very well either and then you go to a place where it's always sunny you live outdoors it's like people are wearing shorts and flip-flops around <laughs> like you don't wear shorts and flip-flops in Scotland not even in like August you know i mean yeah
1: <laughs> they have, to have one day a year where they can do that
0: exactly you know so <laughs> and but you get there not only is the weather nice and that changes your whole attitude about everything Kind of like the way you started to loosen up when we were in Florida after being in the dreary New England all of your life.
1: <laughs> That's why I got there as soon as I could. Yes,
0: because Connecticut is such a rough, rough place. But um, anyway. Well, no. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but no, but then it was also like the class stuff is kind of gone, you know, and the religious, Mm-mm. you must be Church of England or you must be Catholic or that kind of stuff, All that stuff kind of fades away, too. So you get the class and the political and the religious stuff loosening up there. And suddenly, yeah, you've got people who are happy. And I have been to Australia. And I find Australians to be warm, welcoming, happy, and hearty outdoor living people. I mean, people who, who live life to the fullest. Whereas, you know, I also lived in London for a long time. And, well, you get, you get different kinds of people in London. It is maybe a little more international because it is a little closer to more things. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I would, I would love the opportunity to live amongst the Australians for a few years like I did amongst the Englanders.
1: Yeah, definitely uh I think if you if you had the mindset of you were going to go and assimilate into yourself, I think they'd be pretty welcoming if you wanted to fit in there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. As long as you're cool and you're, you know, you want to mm-hmm. do the fun stuff. I mean, they're they're down, they're up for it, you know. Right. So all right. So we don't have to go way back in time because that's what we do. We kind of say, all right, what was leading up to them releasing this album, this Cargo album, and then we kind of at the end we'll do what what comes next, but yeah, their first ever release was Business as Usual in 1981, with most all the songs written by Colin Hay, who's the lead singer, and he, and he plays guitar. And he had gotten together with Ron Stryker, who was the lead guitar player. And they'd had a band for a while in the 70s. They were kind of a duo. They were writing songs they wrote down under, you know, in the 70s. And I think it was the B-side to another, like a, like a self-financed single that they released uh, on their own. So so they they were kind of a duo, and they were gigging around and, and doing their thing. And then eventually, I guess, they're like, well, we've got to put together a band. And I guess Stryker had known Jerry Spicer, who was the drummer, and he was kind of a balding guy, and he usually had, you know, like a life beater on in the videos or something <laughs> like that, you know. They were quirky guys. They, you know, they they dressed differently than everybody else did. They were just kind of... They did. They did their own thing. And part of that, I think, is being Australian and, and having that kind of different mindset that most people have. But uh, but they just kind of did their own thing. It was key punch operator that was their debut single. They self financed, which helped them oh, eventually, right? yeah, to get to get signed. But the, yeah, the, the backing track was Down Under, not the Down Under that we all know and love. It was kind of a different version of. It. And then, but uh, so Spizer's in the band. Eventually, he gets his buddy John Reese to be the. Uh, bass player and I guess Colin befriended Greg Ham, who is we talk about being a utility infielder, somebody who can play different things. That's Greg Hamm, man. He plays yeah. the flute. He plays the sax. A couple different kind of saxes. I feel like he can play a, a little bit of keyboard if necessary. Because I looked I looked for because you hear some some synths in here mm-hmm. and it doesn't really say who did it. And I always just kind of assume. Oh no it is it does say Greg Hamm keyboards, yes. Yeah. So So he does the keyboards, he does background vocals, he plays a little harmonica, he sings lead on the second-to-last song. So, you know, this guy's a real talent, and he was the one who kind of, we'll get into this later, but he's the one who stuck with Colin when he reformed Men at Work later. It was really the two of them that were, that kind of were Men at Work.
1: Yeah, that's that's the way that I always thought of it, and I know there was a deal where things started to come off the rails when they did that uh, Rolling Stone piece on them, and the cover was just the two of them, just just Hay and uh, and Ham, and so yeah, then that's when it starts. You know, people get bent out of shape; they get, you know, they get their feelings hurt. But I mean, like you pointed out before. I mean when you go through and look at this, all of this is written by Colin Hay except for one, two, three tracks on the original record. So as much as you don't want to believe this, this really is his band and you kind of fit in where you fit in here.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, and, and Stryker, you know, look, Stryker co-wrote Down Under. So mm-hmm. he he's not a non-part of the band. He, he's sure. not just an add-on. And, and those two getting together. And there's a brilliant documentary on Colin Hay that came out years ago, a few years back called Waiting for My Real Life. That chronicles him through as a boy, moving from Scotland to Australia, getting into music, forming Men at Work, break of the band, getting sober, moving to Los Angeles and all that kind of stuff. But you could, in that bit with his ex-wife saying, as soon as he met Ron, he came home, I found the guy that mm-hmm. I want to be in this band with. Yeah. Him. And he's brilliant. He's super talented and he's, he's awesome and it's going to work. And, you know they wrote down under together, which you can't deny the the power of that song worldwide, globally. You know, so yeah, they they all got together, they made this record, and, and the first record, business as usual, and between who can it be now? And I love that video. You know, it's kind of got Colin sitting in his house like, I don't want to come out. Don't bother yeah. kind of thing. <laughs> you know, and then of course, Down Under, the classic Down Under song, which look, the first Men at Work album sold six million copies in America on its own. 15 million copies worldwide, according to the documentary. And that song sold millions more as well. Mm-hmm. And Who Can It Be Now did well. And then Be Good Johnny, I remember the video was, it's just funny. And it's look, they've got a sense of humor. They're not, super serious like everything we do a song like be good johnny it's like you're gonna play football this year johnny no nah, nah. i mean that's a funny song they're, <laughs> they're having some fun with this so i think that their comedy you know worked well and i think the fact that they made these low budget videos but that it still had some kind of a story to tell i mean mm. look, mtv needed them. mtv needed product and so as mtv was taking off also, Men at Work were catching hold with their first album, even though it was late uh, coming out in America. They were catching hold, and it was just like a—it just blew up from there.
1: Mm-hmm. So, really, in America, it was the two records were put together basically. There was no break, and I think that's ultimately what hurt them. But yeah, for a while, it was it was a juggernaut. Like it was every everywhere that you looked was Men at Work, and I think it got to the point where they they changed the sign didn't they from men at work to men working (laughs) because people were stealing them the the road signs and putting them up in the garage.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Men at work signs were all over Australia and then they were all gone. Mm -hmm. Like, What's going on? Where'd they go? You know, but uh, no, absolutely. They were swiping it everywhere. But yeah, I mean, it was released in like November of 81, kind of in Australia and in most places around the world, but it didn't really get released in the United States. Until much later. I mean, it debuted in November of 82 on the Billboard Hot 100 at at 79, eventually went to number one in 1983. So, you know, 15 months later or whatever, it finally caught on fire in America. In fact, they had Cargo, this album, ready to go, I believe in maybe 1982. But because A, it kept doing well uh, around the world, and then B, America was slow to catch on, and now business as usual, is catching on big in America 82 and 83. They just held on to Cargo. Mm -hmm. And, I mean, it was probably the right thing to do. But also, that that can be detrimental to a band, too. It's like, we hurried up, we made this record, it's ready to go out, and now it's just got to sit there. Now, they can play the songs live, sure. And, like, they got picked up by Fleetwood Mac to open for them on what was, I guess that was the Tango in the Night tour, huh? It's one of those.
1: Yes, that sounds about right. And to hear Mick Fleetwood say, hey, these guys were really a big, a big part of our show, like they really kind of energized the crowd and got it, you know, obviously they're not, you're there to see Fleetwood Mac, but to have an opening band that people connect with, and then they're ready for that, and it kind of propels you, because I mean, you got to figure in 1983, Fleetwood Mac was still big, but they were kind of old. Right, you know, for and so to have this younger band that's that's hot and just starting to break gives a different dynamic to the tour.
0: Yeah, it's been six or seven years since Rumors. Yeah, uh, and Tusk it had now been you know four or five years since Tusk, and and so yeah, it, uh, but you're right. Have somebody come out and energize you, and while they're on that tour opening for Fleetwood Mac, their album went to number one and right. eventually their song went to number one. So right. that it could have created tension, right? It could, it, people like, Get these people out of here because they're taking all our thunder.
1: Right. Well, it, didn't, and the cool- it didn't sound that way. Right. It, it, yeah, the cool part was, I think it was hey, and I think um, somebody else said that in the documentary, too, about how the Fleetwood Mac, I think it was Spicer, said they took them under their wing and really mm-hmm. showed them how to play. Like, you can play a club with 40 drunks in it, sweating all over the place. Here's how you play to a giant audience in an arena and so that that definitely gave them the education to to be an opening band themselves
0: yes and it it paid off because i mean suddenly they're going to be headlining and for the next couple years they're going to be doing well you know and they they were nominated for grammy for best new group best new artist, and they won (laughs) they won on the strength of 15 million sales around the world six million in the u.s and and those big hits you know so crazy he
1: didn't, he didn't say it, in. He didn't say it in that documentary, but I've seen him say it before, where he shows you the Grammy. He's like, here's the Grammy for the Best New Artist slash Kiss of Death Award.
0: <laughs> right. Yes. Never to be seen again. You know? Correct. But, uh, and then I, I, I didn't realize in, in doing research, when he saw a uh, head full of zombie in Down Under, mm-hmm. he's actually talking about being high. He was talking about oh, boy. Uh, the use of marijuana. I'm like, really? <laughs> I never knew that. How about that? Where Beer Does Flow and Men Chunder, which means To Vomit. I knew that. Um, So, no, so they they have this huge hit, 15 million records and and a bunch more singles. It's like, wow. Okay, so now we go straight into the next one, which is Cargo. And, yeah, I mean, it, it was like, who can it be now? And Down Under and Be Good Johnny were basically still on the charts. I mean, Be Good Johnny was released as a single in April of 83, right before Cargo, which Mm -hmm. does not contain Big Johnny on it, was released, you know, uh worldwide here. So yeah, they're they're kind of running into each other here, and then one video kind of looks just like the next video, right? Mm -hmm. But they don't they don't make the first video, they don't release the first single, Dr. Heckle and Mr. Jive, until October, because Big Johnny was still, you know, surfing through the spring there. Not to mention when they did the America's Cup, which used to be a really big deal. I feel like it's less of a deal now, at least in America. Yeah. America's Cup is the great yacht race. And America had basically won it every year for like 100 years. Well, I mean, I think it was every two years. But anyway, we, we'd never lost until 1983. And Australia, too, this big old, you know, this guy this with this new hole design and all that kind of thing. They came to America and they, they whipped us at our own game. And, of course, Down Under being the theme song for Australia, it really boosted the nation. It boosted them to this historic victory. Mm-hmm. It was a huge celebration, obviously, after they won, because the Australians know how to celebrate. I know that firsthand. <laughs> uh, and so that really helped That, but it helped propel uh, men at work really into their hearts. It's kind of like, okay, this is really an Australia band. These, these are our boys, and we love them. And now they're hitting it huge in America. Sky's the limit.
1: Yeah, yeah. The, the, what did they say? They went in two years. They went from playing clubs to being the number two slot on the US festival behind the Clash. Yeah. So yeah, and then the thing about you know you're in this helicopter going over the crowd, thinking, what are we doing here? Like this is just this is this can't be real. This is a dream. This this happens so fast.
0: I know. And yet here's their second album. It goes to number three. Mm-hmm. In the US, it goes to number eight in the UK, obviously it goes to number one in Australia, but it's going platinum and double platinum. I mean, triple platinum in the US, triple platinum in Canada, platinum in their homeland of Australia, platinum next door in New Zealand. And that's kind of, that, you know, you could almost say that's based on the sales of the previous album of Business as Usual because they did even better on business. Like I said, six million in the US went to number one for 15 weeks in the US. That's impressive, especially, and it was they were the first. Australian band ever to have, or act, to have a number one song and a number one album at the same time. So they're they're on fire coming into cargo.
1: Right, and you always have that fear of the sophomore slump, where you were hot the first time out, then the next one comes out and kind of falls flat. I mean, you can't sneeze at 5 million copies. Even though it's not, it's not 15, it's still pretty good.
0: No, it's still very good. 3 million in the U.S. is very good. Right? Yeah. Heck yeah, and the cover... Which I always loved. I had it on cassette, so I didn't have the LP like you did. You must have loved just staring staring at the cover, you know. With with all this color on it, you
1: know? Yeah, and all the stuff in the that's the stuff that's on the I guess this is an island where they're dropping something on dropping something new onto. And yeah, what is all this stuff? What does it mean? It's it's colorful. I like the fact that it's a it's a standalone piece from the record. It's not just a a photo of the band or something to do with the with the record they don't mention cargo one time there is no song named cargo they don't i don't think they even mention it in any of the lyrics it's a totally standalone deal
0: yeah yeah i know you know it's it's super colorful it's got the minute stamp on it you got the plane dropping off the parachuting down thing and then yeah on the beach on the land here there's all sorts of stuff around lots of great color but then yes in the, the band photo because you have to have the band photo in the back Here they all are in their tuxes with their hair slicked back, sitting in the men's toilet. (laughs) And that's, again, their sense of humor. Like, yes, we're very important now. That's why we're wearing tuxes, except we're in the men's. Uh, We're not exactly in Carnegie Hall. But I think he said they played five or seven nights at Radio City Music Hall. Yeah. I'm like, wow, they really did make it big and fast, didn't they?
1: Yeah, and the whole thing about the the, he got the uh, limo for his dad when they came over. And the guy, and his father's like, I don't understand. How is this guy always here? <laughs> He's here for you, Deb. We hired him to drive him. We'll <laughs> drive you wherever you want to go. He sits there until you come Correct. out. <laughs>
0: <Right>. Correct.
2: <laughs> Hi, this is Carl Palmer, and you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf.
0: <laughs> uh, all right, well, we better get through, this, through these songs, or we're not going to have any time. But all right. Overall, I mean, I just want to say that listening to this album was a real delight. For me, not that I don't haven't enjoyed the other albums we've done lately and, and a lot. Most of the stuff we've, it seems we've done lately, I either haven't listened to in forever or maybe not at all, like in the case of Marillion. But listening to this, I don't know, it just made me happy. It took me back to a time and a place where uh-huh. I, I didn't know about people screwing each other over in the music business. I didn't know about <laughs> Ticketmaster convenience fees. I didn't know about all the stuff. I All I know is that MTV was fun. These videos were fun and this music will pick you up it's good time
1: yeah and and i was trying to think what kind of music is this like it doesn't really fit into any i mean it's it's kind of rock it's kind of new wave maybe even kind of punk if you listen to what they're saying Mm -hmm. but it they, they kind of do their own thing and i think for when i was a kid the real attraction to the to this band was that they didn't, it seemed like they didn't take themselves too seriously. Like they were just having the best time fooling around, making
0: these videos, going on tour, playing. Concerts. Exactly. Yeah, no, they're having fun. And you're right. It, that was what I think was so brilliant about MTV and the early 80s is that that new wave thing was kind of a catch-all. You know, it, yes, you could be new wave, but you could also be reggae. Uh, you yeah. know, like the police put in bits of reggae and stuff into their songs. Uh, you could be a little bit punk because there were definitely like Billy Idol definitely comes from a punk band you know he's Mm -hmm. all over MTV you know so and as long as you had synths and some of those new sounds in there then you would make it and it wasn't just you had to fit into this box maybe heavy metal like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin were kind of out but there was all this new stuff that was in and available and they were just kind of part of the sound Mm -hmm. and look this isn't overproduced, you know, what's, is his name Peter McKeon? I've never really heard of this producer before. I saw him in the, in the video of the Colin Hay thing. I'm like, I've never even heard of this guy. I think he's American, but you know, some of it's kind of spare. It's, it's like, it needs to be pumped up in some areas. It sounds like to me, but at the end of the day, it still sounds good and it all sounds good together. Even though the songs are all different, it makes one statement of an album.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and you're right. I'm looking at this at the photo again from the back where they're, uh, you know, it's black and white. It's definitely a staged photo. They're all very made up. They've got the tuxes on, but yeah, they're sitting in the toilet. And I was, I remember looking at that thinking, well, that's kind of crazy. Why would you do that? That's, that's just silly. But I think that's, that's what they were. And, and Hayes got this look on his face like, "Mm -hmm."
0: yes, the devilish (laughs) Mr. Hayes. (laughs)
1: Exactly. Like, you know, what are we doing here? So yeah, it, it always struck me that, they, everything that they were doing was kind of tongue-in-cheek was kind of they really couldn't believe this was happening to them and they were going to ride this thing as far as it would go
0: yeah and have some fun with it right yeah yeah exactly and, so, and i
1: think i think that's definitely in the first track
0: well yeah we start off with dr heckle and mr jive which was the first single and the the video is great i mean perfect for 1983 but it's a funny song, obviously, but when he talk about he works late at the laboratory, well, if you're from England or you're from Australia, you know what a laboratory is. But in America, we have laboratories. We don't have laboratories. Correct. So that was off-putting, but it, kinda, it shows to a young man who had never really been anywhere at that point in his life that there are other worlds out there, and even though they look the same as you and they speak the same language... There's still cultural differences that you are not aware of, young man.
1: It just sounds better to say that laboratory. laboratory. Mm, yes, yes.
0: Doctor Heckle works. They did the laboratory.
1: <laughs> 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 Doctor Heckle works late at the laboratory where things are not as they seem. Doctor Heckle wishes nothing more desperately than all his dream Letting loose with a scream in the dead of night as he's breaking new ground
0: and trying his best to unlock all the secrets, but he's not And of course they had Greg hand play Dr. Heckle because he's he is a ham I mean he lives up to his name he is a performer he does yep. what he faces in all their videos you can see him being a bit of a ham you know being a performer and I think Colin did stage performance and plays like when he was in college and things mm-hmm. like that so while some people like getting Don Henley to do a video he's like eh, I'm not an actor I don't want, I sing songs and write songs I don't want to you know these guys are like, yeah, what do you want us to do? Want me to put on a mustache? Want me to put on a funny hat? Want to zoom in on my weird eyes? Yeah, come on, let's let's do it, you know. So. Oh, you know
1: what? That's what I wanted to say. That's and I have this written down somewhere. That's what I always liked about this is that they never shied away from his weirdo lazy eye. Mm-hmm. Like it was it was off-putting, but it became part of the look of the band. I mean, he could have easily stood there with sunglasses the whole time. Right. But they they kind of embraced that, and I think that was part of it too is that they were not afraid to show that they were real people and, and, and did, you know, it wasn't always Rockstar 24 7.
0: Right. Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly right. They'll take the piss out of themselves as quickly Correct. as they take them out of the government yeah. or the audience or, or whomever, you know. And Spicer's playing Igor, basically his, yeah. his punchback <laughs> assistant next to him. And then, but it's weird because it cuts to like, then Colin is Sherlock, you know, walking around looking for, you know, Dr. Heckle. And then Colin is a scout leader. By uh, a fireplace, not a fire pit, but a fireplace.
1: You know? and, and the rest of the guys are the Boy Scouts and they're all mm-hmm. in the Boy Scout uniforms. That was a little bit like, I don't know where we're going with this, but right. yeah. But the, the idea of, you know, this dude who's kind of dopey and he, you know, develops this Zero. potion yes. that, you know, instantaneously makes him the, you know, the smoothest guy around. There's something to that. You know, you just want to take the, you know, you can just transform yourself and everything is cool in two seconds.
0: Well, it's a great play on words of the heckle and Mm -hmm. the the Jekyll and Hyde story. And, yeah, it shows him go to the party. And, yeah, he's a weirdo nerd. And he goes in the bathroom, takes some of his serum. The girls come in and have some. And they turn into plants. Okay, that's weird.
1: Yeah, You
0: know. And then Colin walks into the party as the Scoutmaster. This is the story. And everyone's (laughs) kind of laughing. He's taking off his hat. He's taking off his fake mustache and singing along. So they're (laughs) having fun. And then Ham comes out, yeah. He's smooth now. He's got the hair slicked back. He's got that big smile on his face. He's playing piano. He's
1: working the crowd. Yeah, everybody loves him.
0: Yeah. yeah. So it. I mean, that's that's what you would expect from the story. It didn't turn him into a didn't turn turn a, a madman into a monster. It turned a uh, a weirdo a nerd uh, into Mister Smooth. And yeah. I think a lot of people can relate to that. You know. So. <laughs> but Ham was great. You know. And then the boys were singing to each other in the tuxes at the end. Maybe they they took the bathroom shot you know right after they did that video who knows <laughs> and then there's Dr Heckle and and Igor kind of walking off into the sunset together by the pontries like this is this is perfect for MTV i remember hearing it on the radio a little bit but i remember the video so much more
1: yeah i i would agree with you and and the the chorus kind of brings it more into a i don't want to say legitimate song but it it's kind of more it kind of rocks out a little more when It makes it a little more solid where the beginning and the end part are kind of goofy. That kind, yeah. of, that kind of cements it. it. And it's very catchy.
0: No, It did well. I mean, 12 on, on hot mainstream rock tracks in the U.S., 28 on the Billboard 100, 31 in the U.K., number six in Australia. You know? So they did well. And they had a, a couple of different B-sides to it. One was Shintaro, which was a non-album single. Uh, written by Stryker, uh, which was on the uh, the remastered edition, mm-hmm. which fits in very well. In Japan, it was No Restrictions, which is the last song on the record. And they had some live versions of a few things on like the uh, on the 12-inch for Great Britain. So, But it's an interesting way to start off the record, I feel like. I mean, I guess they figured that was the single, and they were right. I understand why maybe they didn't come out with Overkill, or even It's a Mistake, as the lead single. But I just thought it was kind of an odd... A little bit of a strange way to to start the album, like, no, you know what, these guys are weird. They're going to do their own thing anyway, right? (laughs) But it worked. It worked. It worked. And then we go straight into Overkill, Mm -hmm. which is, it's not Down Under, but it's, it's one of their most iconic songs and of course it's had a second life after 1983 right so uh but yeah no they uh they did this on St Kilda Pier in Melbourne with him kind of walking around doing that I can't get to sleep bit I don't know do you what do you remember of this one from when we were kids
1: yeah i think this this is one of those ones where the video i saw the video a million times and is it the fact that what he's saying or the fact that they shot it at night. You just think of being awake at night, being mm-hmm. up at night. This is a lot more serious of a song than uh, the first track. They're not wearing goofy clothes. They're wearing more like new wavy looking mm-hmm. like suits. And so this just seems, it seems like he's more serious. And you're right. when it, I don't know when that was, like the early 2000s, when it got into scrubs right? and he was playing it acoustically and then you listen to what he's saying. This is a pretty heavy-duty song as far as um, the themes that he's trying to get across to you. I can get to sleep I think about the implications diving
0: into deep and possibly the complications yeah no and, and this was uh, i think he saw it was kind of about growing up mm-hmm. and, and moving on you know with like another phase in his life or whatever and it was also a song that after he wrote it he was like he felt like wow i'm really going to be able to to do this for a living now aren't i this, mm-hmm. this is this is a song that that's like grown up and it gives me confidence that I can be a professional songwriter, and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. So you're right. He's walking at night, and then he's on his bed flipping out. I can't get to sleep. Yeah. He's like freaking out. I used to think that this was a mellow song, but then I'm listening to it this time. It's underneath what he's singing. It's pretty upbeat. It's pretty driving beat on this um, thing. It, it, I would call it more mid-tempo. It's not really slow.
1: Yeah, and it's got that great, the sax at the beginning, and so you, it's very signature, this sound, you know, that bum, 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 you know exactly what's coming in, you know, and then he, yeah, it's just a, it, it makes you think. And then that line about the, you know, when he, at the end, when he's talking about ghosts appear and fade away, you know, yeah. like, what is he talking about? Like, what are you, what do you, what does that mean? Especially to a kid? I'm like, mm-hmm. but yeah, it is about, I think it is about getting older and moving, moving on with your life yeah yeah and and i think that's we're going to talk about that in the next track too
0: yeah no and look you're right the sax is kind of the star here the yeah guitar solo is muted and you can see him play a little bit of it in the video but it fits just right i don't think Stryker's an amazing guitar player but he seems to fit in right with what colin hay is doing yeah most of the time and by and, the and, way yeah. th- these are all written By Colin Hay, except when we let you know, basically they're all written by Colin Hay, but there's a couple of Stryker songs and co-writes on
1: here. The the interesting thing you said about Stryker was that when when he first saw him or first met him, he was taken by the fact that, I mean, you're right. He's not, you know, he's not doing anything crazy, but he likes to play stuff that doesn't necessarily fit into the song. Like he was Mm -hmm. saying something about he's playing swing on a reggae track or something like, why would you do that? But you know what? That actually kind of works. And I think for most of the stuff in the in this on this record, he's not lighting it up, but it fits really nicely in the song.
0: Right, he fits in with Colin perfectly. Yeah. on that stuff, and it just it seems to work. They actually got to uh, to play this on Saturday Night Live uh, on the twenty second of October, nineteen eighty three. That's fun. Was Eddie Murphy on the show then? I feel like he probably was.
1: That sounds about right.
0: Uh, Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, an underrated cast. Uh, But you're right. I mean, eventually, they did pick it up on Scrubs. Zach Braff went to go see him play at Largo. Uh Uh, And I think the producer and and his wife, who was also on the show, she was like, she was John's ex-wife, wife, wife, whatever. Correct. uh, Who's now on a show on Apple Plus. We were just talking about Apple Plus. She's on Shrinking with Jason Segel and Harrison Ford. Okay. Where they play Shrinks. And then she plays like, you know, like the rich housewife in, what are they, Pasadena? They're in some place where all just a bunch of rich assholes live. And she's <laughs> obviously had a little work done. And that was throwing me off. I'm like, I know I know this girl, but what do I know her from? She's had work done so her mouth could kind of sound a little different. Oh, boy. And I'm like, why would you do that? You were so beautiful before. And they're like, where do I know her from? I don't even know. It's from Scrubs. But Colin. We'll talk about this a little later. He he not only got his songs on to Scrubs a couple times, especially this one, Overkill, but he appeared on them singing. Mm-hmm. Them, so And it, it really boosted his career in a big way. But let's get to song number three between Chainsaw Rips here with Settle Down, My Boy. Now, this is a Ron Stryker, not only written song, but they let him sing it on here as well. Mm-hmm. Th- that'll throw you off.
1: It- it'll throw you off, but I will never hate something like this because this is the album cut this was never going to be a single it's it's cool to hear somebody else sing even though obviously his voice is not as strong as hayes but he he wrote it himself this is something that he feels passionate about these themes and so this is a cool like i said cool album cut
0: Yeah, and it, it's a silly, it's kind of a fun but silly little song. Settle down, my boy, settle down. And there's not yeah. a whole lot to it. It is 40 seconds longer on this remastered version that I picked up, which is not necessary. Um, mm-hmm. it, it does not have to be 40 <laughs> seconds longer. At three and a half minutes, it already felt very long to me. And it's, it's, it's repetitive as hell at the end. Settle down, my boy, settle down. I mean, how many times can you hear that? Yeah. it is good to hear hey on the harmonies yes uh, because then you realize okay it really is like Ron and, and hey and Greg maybe you know on the harmonies that was that's what kind of makes their their sound there through the uh, the choruses and stuff like that but uh you know especially when I was younger I'm like this doesn't sound right to me <laughs> you
1: know that and and settle down and eat your peas and gravy that sounds gross I don't want that I
0: know why is this on? Yeah. The first side of the record, we could put, especially when It's a Mistake is on the second side. It's like, why is this on the first side? But, you know, he probably was like, hey, my songs need to get on too. Like, okay, yeah, sure, whatever.
1: Whatever Fine. you say, Ron. Yeah. But what I like about this is when you go back and listen to it, the theme is kind of the same. Or it's similar as, as Overkill. When it's like, it's this guy, now he's, it, it, to me it sounds like it, the parent saying to the kid, well, okay, listen, you know, you're getting to be an adult here. You can't be a jerk off kid the rest of your life. You got to, you know, you got to get settled down. You've got to get right. you know, going in the future. You're gonna have to get a wife. You're gonna have to save for retirement. You're gonna have to stop being. You can't run around all the time anymore. So it's, I think it's somebody realizing that again they're they're kind of moving on to the next phase of their life and becoming an adult. And what does that mean?
0: Right, and it's you just strum your little songs in your bed. No, yeah. you got to write good songs and you got to right. get out in front and play people and play mm-hmm. every night and that kind of thing. So. I'm with you. It's like, I, I don't fault them for doing it. It is right. a good album track. I skip it for the most part. <laughs> to be perfectly honest with you. But I had a lot of fun listens. Like, I listened to this while I was making, like, dinner. I listened to this while our family was eating. I listened mm-hmm. to it while we were, like, chilling out, uh, doing stuff around the house. And it, it's a fun listen overall. The fourth song, Upstairs in My House, and this is Striker and Hay, Together. There's a bit of a groove here. I kind of like it. And there's a lot of melody Mm-hmm. to it it's not overproduced where one thing is above the other except for maybe the voice and Colin holds some big notes on this one it, it really is kind of showing off what he can do vocally
1: yeah and and it's nice cuz this one this one's a little lighter as far as the tone i think like there isn't any any kind of doom and gloom it's just kind of hanging out and i like it because you kind of need something like this again we've got some pretty heavy duty themes we're going to get into especially a little bit later So this is a nice little in-between song.
0: Yeah, I mean, Settle Down could almost be like a, it wasn't really reggae, but it was also, it was more kind of ska almost with the, okay. with the beat yeah. to it, you know. Mm-hmm. Upstairs my house, this kind of brings it back to, okay, but we're kind of going to go back into that pop sensibility here. It's very 1983 mm-hmm. to me, you know. It just sounds perfect for the time, bit of groove there. And I think they like to play this one. So it's, you know, it, it's a good one. It's It kind of brings it back after they kind of we're, we're veering off, to the side with his Striker song, number three, the Settle Down, My Boy. But now we're going, okay, now we're coming back. And, and yeah, it's it's cool. It's, it's a yeah. bit upstairs in my house. Yeah. I like it. It's about four minutes long. However, the next song, No Sign of Yesterday. Yeah. This is very slow. This is like mm-hmm. bring you down slow. Yeah. And yep. it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of too slow. If you ask me. it It is.
1: It doesn't really fit in with the rest of the record as far as the pacing of this. And this one is a, you know, you're kind of wondering what he's talking about also, you know, I can't hear you calling anymore. Like, did he lose someone or something? I don't know. The sacks at the end is, is kind of nice, but you're right. This is a real shift of gears.
0: Yeah, and, and it's like you're you're slowing it way down, and you're also talking about some really mundane things like mm-hmm. doing the dishes and cleaning your place, and yeah. looking at the yard where you used to play. I think the keys, some of the keys, keyboards are there help out. And there's a long play out at the end. It's over six minutes on the re-release version. Well, on both versions. It's got an extra 20 seconds on the on the remastered version, but it's over six minutes. It's almost like they didn't really know how to end this one kind of thing. Yeah. But I'll tell you, on first listen, I'm like, okay, this is too long and it's too slow. It And, and you couldn't play it live because it would just kill the
1: concert. <laughs> vibe. I mean, yeah. just
0: kill it. But after I listened to it three or four times, like you do have to get to know it a little bit Mm-hmm. and like you say you've got the sax play out at the end which makes it very men at work so I, you know I, I don't dislike it to be honest with it it's just it's a little out of place and it's a good thing they put it like at the end of side one mm-hmm. so you could then either take it off and flip the LP as you did or for me fast forward <laughs> to the end and flip the tape so you can get on to It's a Mistake on the other side taste.
1: No sign of yesterday I can't hear you calling. I can't hear you calling. I can't hear you anymore.
0: Not the ships are falling. This old car keeps stalling. Because that's, if I recall correctly, that's exactly what I did in 83 and
1: 84. <laughs> I <was listening. laughs> yeah, can I, I would really, going back and, and watching me listen to this record back then i guarantee you i probably didn't listen to this track too slow singles coming up next let's go
0: exactly you know the the song i like is next let's get through this boring one
1: uh (laughs) yeah
0: but i mean it's it's better than i mean it's it's probably the one that i forgot the most yeah and it's probably because i skipped it quite a bit but there's some good stuff in there it's just it's too long it's it's not a perfect fit for everything else but let's get on to it's a mistake Mm mm-hmm it's a mistake. This was another big video mm-hmm. for them. It was, I mean, Overkill was their their second. And so they're kind of going in order on the record as far as which ones were released as single, right? First song, Dr. Heckle, first single. Second song, Overkill, second single. Uh, and it was, hold on, what did it have as a B-side? Till the Money Runs Out, which is another somewhat repetitive non-album album. Uh, B side. And then we get to It's a Mistake, which had a great I mean, a killer a killer video, really. Mm -hmm. And it helped propel them into the top 10 in America. Like, I don't think it did as well in Australia. It definitely didn't do as well in the UK. In fact, it only got to 33 in the UK. It only got to 34 in Australia. But 6 on the Hot 100, 10 on Adult Contemporary, 12 on Cashbox, 27 on, on Rock Tracks. So this was all over the radio, and it was all over MTV. If it is,
1: can we all come? Don't think that we don't know. Don't think that we're not trying. No. Don't think we move too slow.
2: It's noise after crying, saying it's a mistake.
1: Yeah, I, I this is the one I remember seeing first in my in my recollection. This one is the big was the big single to me because I remember this when this video came out, it was on all the time, and it had right. the little that had the little uh, dolls at the beginning of the stop motion. They were walking around. Yes, Um well, and, and figures. Yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And I like the fact where he's playing the chords at the beginning. You know, bum bum, and then the guitar comes in and plays that little tiny riff. And then the drum drop in is really cool. Bump, 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 bam, and then it goes into the song. And so it was just a, it was an interesting way to start the song. Not something that you really heard too much at this point in time. Usually it was the, you know, the riff starts and then it goes into the rest of the song.
0: Yeah, That's a good call there. Uh, it was back with no restrictions, I think, in Australia with other things. Maybe Shintaro in other spots around the world. But obviously this is about nuclear war and the threat of nuclear war mm-hmm. and they're you know they're showing in the in the video like they'll show the different guys at different jobs like break hands in the office like you know being an accountant and uh striker it's like a, a nurse or a doctor oh that's you know, right that's right yeah, yeah. yeah. and they the construction, worker. the construction worker but they you know they go from like him having his pickaxe to having his gun or then they go from striker to like you know working on a kid to, you know carrying his medical supplies it's like and of course they have colin as the general Mm-hmm. Uh, because he's writing all the songs, you know, but, um <laughs> but it's got a great melody to it. It's got a bit of a reggae bit to it and very reggae guitar. And it's still very tongue in cheek. And the synths make it very of the time. Mm-hmm. And again, the solo wasn't much there. We kind of stop and, and show it with on a hill with like maybe fireworks behind them in the background. Yeah. Like there's not that much to it, but again, it fits the song just fine. And, Again, they're having some fun, like with when Colin actually hits the, he, he launches the rocket with his, by putting his cigar out and he makes yeah. his face like, oops, what did I do? And Greg's going, ah, he's freaking out and sticks his fingers in his ears like, okay, gotcha. that'll keep the nuclear bomb from making a big <laughs> noise. They had some fun with it, obviously, and it went up the charts. I mean, you know, it, it did very well in America. It didn't do as well elsewhere, but it did very well in America. And again, I got to believe that's because of the video.
1: Yeah, and and what I was thinking about was growing up in the United States. You know, it was kind of the United States against Russia was the big deal. Kind of, I don't know, like it is today. Yeah, good, good thing that's all over. Yeah. Now. Uh-huh. Anyway, <laughs> but I I thought it, it, it'd be interesting to have grown up in a place like Australia where it, you were still part of this deal, but not you were kind of a side player. Like, how did that look? Like, were did this? These would you imagine just these two idiots just screaming at each other and hey, you know, if you blow this place up, we're involved with this also, but we're not we're not directly, you know, one of the two players in this deal. And how ridiculous it must
0: have looked to other people in the world. Well, it's interesting you bring that up because I remember when I was in Australia and that was a long time ago now. That was god, was it 15 years ago that I was in Australia. Crazy. But while I was there, it was like the 50th anniversary of Sputnik, right? The the Russian satellite was okay. the first to, to orbit the planet. And it was great to see someone else's perspective. Someone because in America we're like, oh, that's the Russians and they're coming to spy on us and it's an in the space race and we gotta make our stuff before they make theirs and da-da-da. Yeah. And to them it was like, look at what mankind can do. Look now we can do a, you know, we can put something in space and it'll go all the way around and Isn't that amazing? It wasn't so scary to Australians. Whereas in America, they they kind of put that fear into us, like, they're watching us at all times and they could do this. And if we don't do it, they're going to own us. uh."
1: Right. Whereas down there,
0: it was more like, wow, mankind is really evolving. Isn't it amazing?
1: Yeah. I think in the United States, it was, oh, well, first of all, yes, they're spying on us. But if they're doing, you know, if they're doing this, we've got to go and do something. We got to top that right now. Yeah. Instead of saying, hey, Great job, guys! Congratulations on propelling mankind. Yeah, you're. We have to do something bigger and better.
0: Ah, we gotta beat them. Let's yeah. put all our top people on it right now. Yeah. Wow, whereas so Australia's like, wow, crikey, would you look at that, mate? Yeah. Let's have another. Yeah, let's go it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but, but, but it helped yeah. me better understand stuff because mm-hmm. obviously in the UK they're very much aligned with us. My guess is. The news would have been about the same in the UK, like oh, look at what the Russian, the evil Russians, can do now. But Australia, maybe it's because they're so far away and they're not huge world players. And they're not a huge, they're a huge country land wise, but not people wise. They're like, yeah, look at that, that's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, and I think that's kind of the the overall thinking in Australia too, right? It's just like, hey, everybody's let you know, ev- everybody's kind of a friend. Everybody's just you know here to hang out and have fun, not out to ruin us.
0: Well, exactly. You know, it's, it's yeah. not a competition for everything.
1: But, but I what I like about this thing, too, is you mentioned the fact that, you know, at the end, he puts the cigar out and he, you know, gives the, uh-oh, what did I do? At the end, it dis- it dissolves, like, almost into that 8-bit audio, like, from the video games. Mm-hmm. And it just, it to me, it just makes the whole thing just seem ridiculous. Like, isn't this a ridiculous thing we're doing?
0: Exactly. It's anti-war.
1: Yeah, Let's correct.
0: not blow ourselves. It's one thing when you can blow up a big part of the city. It's another thing when you can blow up the whole world. Let's not do
2: that. Mm-hmm. That's bad.
0: Hi, this is Jeff Downs, and you're listening to
2: The Ugly American Werewolf. All
0: right, and then the next song, the second on the second side, or the seventh overall, High Wire. Mm -hmm. This was actually the fourth single, and I don't remember this as a single. Released in November of 83, I don't know if I was over Minute Work. I doubt it. I still love them at that point. I don't remember the video at all which is kind of like them being in a circus or a carnival or something right. like that. And it had, on the Australian version, it had Falling Down as one of the B-sides, uh, which is another, it was live, but it was one that they had not released on album yet, and it's part of this CD, which is actually pretty good. So again, it was cool to, to, to kind of learn about this song that I didn't know anything about. But I think maybe at this point we were getting a little bit of Men at Work fatigue, because the this this didn't hardly even chart in australia like it went to 89 in australia I'm like well, how many other songs are there really being released in australia i mean i know they get stuff from all over <laughs> the world just like we do but it's like how how can how can australian band it was a pretty decent song here only get to 89 and maybe they were a little sick of them at that point maybe yeah, it wasn't pushed very hard i don't know
1: one thing that they mentioned on the, the Colin Hay deal was that they they got to the point where at least in America, they had no men at work days like they were, you know, they because they were they were played so much that people mm-hmm. just said, we're not doing this anymore. And yeah, this could have been the the saturation point where people just said, I mean, it's not really a, it's kind of a goofy it's almost a throwaway song like it's not real heavy duty right we're at the carnival i i don't ever remember seeing that video although i do wonder if you know walking on the high wire we're in the, we got to get it together we're in for some nasty weather I, is that like a you're on the road trying to be famous deal like this is a just a, a circus you know the grind of being on the road is not super exciting i don't know
0: You know, it, it sounds like an '80s single to me, and it, it's a very upbeat kind of song. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's kind of a silly circus video of Colin's travails of trying to get a job, and then going for this, and then he's kind of in charge of the boys and the band. They're, you know, they're all like now they're now the boys are in the marching band because, and that's probably what's starting to wear on the guys too. It's like Colin's the star of the video, right? And then they come in. Well, they're just members of the marching band that he's kind of in charge of, right? And then they kind of show them backstage before a show getting ready. And then they finish playing in front of a big crowd. So it's interesting, you know, walking on the high wire. Am I still this, you know, good old bloke from Australia? Or am I this international superstar trying to juggle all this fame and wealth and work that they're Mm -hmm. getting? And they toured extensively all around the world in 1983. They must have been starting to get worn out.
1: Yeah, and then that's when, you know, that's when the things that are, like I think they said too, it, the, the things that you don't say are way worse than the things that you do say. And, you know, stuff just starts to pick at people, and it, this is, you know, you get to the point where you just can't take it anymore.
0: Yeah, but it did somehow get to number 23 on the Billboard chart, I and mean, that's probably just the power of the, the wind in their sails right. from everything else that had been going on minute work-wise that year, really for the last 18 months, right? But that's kind of what it boils down to. It's like, Men at Work were huge in America for about 18 months. And then, poof, they were gone. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's the ultimate flash in the pan. Not a one-hit wonder, because they had about six or seven hits on the radio. But because there was no space between the first two albums, and then they're all over MTV, which didn't have that much to run, right? I mean, it's not like they had... Tens of thousands of videos, you know. They, especially like early '82, were there 200 videos? I don't know if there were. You know, I mean, they, they just needed content. So if you've got one that's funny and fun, plus it's a hit on the radio, all right, yeah. Well, we're going to run that once mm. every hour or two, where you're going to see that all the time. All right. So then we move on to Blue for You, which is a little reggae number, and it's not remarkable. I mean, it's basically just uh, it's kind of about a girl, kind yeah. of. You know. Yeah.
1: But th- but this one's a nice change of pace too because it's you know you can tell that it's you say reggae I don't know if it's really it's reggae influenced right uh, just you know just something different for them to play shows that they can do more than one style of music. Sometimes the sun shines in and I close the blind
2: cause I can't stand to see the light of day. I have no use for. Pain. I don't mind the rain because I can stay outside and hear the sound, sound.
0: Today I look right down, right. yeah and it fits in with what they do there's some other reggae bits uh, around this record and I can understand that beach people uh, mm-hmm. and when you live in Australia you're gonna be a beach person for the most part how reggae music and ska music would would be influenced down there so that makes sense but to me my notes were like it fits but it's kind of generic minute work like it doesn't really stand out there's nothing wrong with it mm-hmm. but it's not amazing I, i'm with you and that it's a you know versus you know coming off it's a mistake in high wire it's a nice little change of pace but it's not remarkable if
1: right I, that makes yeah. sense yes i i would say the same thing it, it, it's I don't know if I would skip it, but I would not be, I don't know. I wouldn't be looking forward to it.
0: No, I wouldn't skip it. its there's, I mean, at this point, you're on the second half anyway, right? <laughs> you, you know not everything's going to be a huge hit. And It's a Mistake was a huge hit. And then Highwire, yeah. short song, it's only three minutes. It's a single, and it sounds like an 80s single, even though I don't recall it as a single. So, all right, change of pace, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that. Then we get to I Like to."
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And if you thought Settle Down, My Boy was an album track, Mm -hmm. this is very much an album track because not only is it written by Stryker, but it's sung by Greg Hamm. Now, again, now we've had three different lead singers on this album. That's kind of cool, but it's also kind of off-putting to the average listener who wants the vocals to sound like they do on the other eight songs and all the hits. (laughs) Right.
1: And and it's, yeah, his voice definitely sounds different. It doesn't sound totally different, but it's different enough where you realize there's a change. I like this one because to me, this sounds more new wavy than than anything else they've done prior to this. So you can kind of tell like, I I don't know. and, And this was a this was a striker only track. Right. So it's it's a little different. I don't know if maybe it was a little older, because that's kind of what it sounds like to me. Like you may have this banging around for a little while, and then you put it on there. I like it because it's just, it's just different, and I do like to hear somebody else take the lead vocals for a nice little interlude here.
0: Yeah, and Ham has a nice voice. He obviously is a big part of the harmonies on all the other songs. Right. I have the same note. The music is very new wave. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't hear Colin on it. Whereas I heard him on Settle Down, my boy, I could hear him in the choruses. I don't hear him in the choruses on this, I think. And it's Stryker and Greg are kind of singing together in some spots um, and kind of weaving in between each other. It's good. It's just, it's not classic men at work with Colin's voice in there anywhere.
2: water down the drain to look at Never
0: read writing just put it down I think Stryker might have fancied that he would keep his biggest I'm not saying it's his best, but his biggest solo for this one because there's a lot of jamming on this one. Mm-hmm. And I, it's not great, his guitar work, but I could tell that this is one that they could stretch out on stage and kind of, yeah. like, you know, this doesn't just have to be four minutes. This could be six, seven minutes. They can kind of and jam and put different things in here.
1: And then I wonder too, you know, he he's sung "Settle Down." So is it, you know, does he think of Greg Ham, or is he, you know, does he try it once and he likes it? Like, how did that? How did Ham singing the lead come to pl- come to pass? That's my question for you,
0: for Ron Striker. Well, maybe we can get yeah. on the show. I don't
1: know. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. Like I said, I, why would you? I mean, you already sang the first one. Why wouldn't you sing this one too? Unless it, something else happened. Did he say he wanted to? Did you feel bad for him and say, hey? You know, you take the lead on this one. I don't know.
0: Well, and he does some some strange stuff with his voice. Uh, You know, he gets up really high with some stuff. So maybe he could do that and Ron couldn't. You Mm -hmm. know, he's like, okay, you've added a dimension that I didn't even think of. You do this one. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, it's upbeat. It's new wave in spots. I thought the harmonies were weird because I can't hear Colin. But, you know, that's why it's the ninth song on a 10-track album, I guess. Right. But they did play this one live. Huh. And then you go into the last song, No Restrictions. And again, this is one that i kind of forgotten about. I don't think I'd ever really made it this far. Oh, <laughs> Like I said, I think at this point I was fast-forwarding to get back to the other side so I could do right. Dr. Heckle and, and do Overkill again. <laughs> but this is, you know, it, it's got a good rhythm to it. It's got a big flute solo for Ham. So he gets a little time to shine. This had been a B-side on some stuff. I feel like the recording is spare, even for this record. This record, it, it, uh, a lot of stuff seems like it's tuned or, or, or it's not tuned down but it's turned down it's 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 not real high in the mix a lot of stuff on this especially the guitar work mm-hmm. and I feel like even for this record it's a little spare the recording but it's not bad it, it fits and I like it but compared to some of the other songs I, it's a little unremarkable it's good enough glad it's on the album I suppose but then you know Shintaro was a b-side to It's a Mistake and it's a striking red song it's got lots of flute it could have been on the album just as easily mm-hmm.
1: No restrictions on what I do or say. I don't speak out
2: tomorrow when it's still today. Leave it to my selfish ways, well and while I'm not alone, that is what I tell myself as I stumble home. Then I lead
1: across the street, and I've got garbage man looks like he's found something neat I'm judging by it. His... Yeah, to me, this sounds very police at the beginning with the with the guitar work that he's doing. And then you hear Hay come in, and obviously he, his voice is the signature for the Men at Work. And then th- this one's more new wavy also, but then they put the flute in, and then that makes it a Men at Work song.
0: That's right. Yeah, and that's what makes it very distinct. So look, all this stuff fits together for an album to me just fine, you know, even though there's some standouts that are kind of weird, you know, like Blue for You is very different from everything else, Mm -hmm. No Sign of Yesterday is extremely different from everything else, if you ask me, and then you get to stuff like Shintaro, Falling Down, which is a Hay written song that they played live, it was very reggae, and it was long, it was one they really stretched out, it was like eight minutes long, live, Mm -hmm. you know, made it a B-side, but down it just it just fit in with what they were doing and then the longest night which was another b-side it was another live one they didn't do it in the studio i guess and greg ham wrote it and they obviously liked that because they played it live and when they got back together hay and ham in the 90s and into the 2000s to kind of reignite it work because they were really big i guess in south america okay and after they broke up there was always like oh let's get the band back together let's do it so they got and hand back together to do it they closed the night they closed the show with the longest night so it was it was one that they held in some esteem obviously and it kind of just shows me they were so busy they were charging so hard they didn't have time to go in the studio and record all these so they worked them out they would play them live and they would just record them live and say okay well there's your b-side right there you know <laughs> because there's four songs and including a, a, there's a fifth there's a live version of Upstairs in, in my house is on the the remaster as well. But you've got four songs, two of which are studio Shintaro until the money runs out, and two of which are live, Falling Down and The Longest Night, which are good men at work songs. And they could have been on this album, and for, you know for whatever reason they weren't. But it just seems like they were running as fast as they could to do everything they could in eighty two, eighty three, right?
1: Yeah, I, I wonder how that would have played out. I mean, I know they had at least one more record that they put together, but I think at that point in time, half the band was already gone. Yeah, I, I wonder why they didn't include Chint- at least Shintaro on this record.
0: I mean, it fits. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. It's a striker composition and they're like, we're going with Colin Hay. Uh,
1: yeah, like, maybe I, at that point in time, he had had enough. Oh, we'll put it on the next one.
0: Well, you know, I don't know. But yeah, so they take a break and I would say it was well earned in 84. Yeah. They take a break after they sell 20 million copies or more worldwide to all this touring all over the world in Europe, in America, in South America, Australia, Japan. I mean, that's, that's a lot from these five guys from, from Australia to, to do, you know? So, you know, you're asking a lot, but then, you know, they, they kind of take a break and then it's like, all right, now Spizer, Jerry Spizer's like, we need to get rid of Russell Deppler, who was their manager Mm -hmm. at the time. He's like, we, we need to get rid of him. And Hayes like, no, we're not getting rid of him. He's like, Look, Spicer's like, he's not even a real manager, man. He's he's fine for you know getting gigs in Melbourne, but we're a worldwide entity now. We need somebody right. bigger. And, uh-huh. and Hayes like, well, I mean, am I even a real musician? Am I even a real songwriter? I don't know. He's my friend. We can trust him at least. Let's mm-hmm. keep it. So Spicer was going to quit, and then he said, no, I'll stay. Mm-hmm. And then he comes back. He's like, okay, well, you're you're no longer required. You're, you're, you're out of the band, and you can take Rees with you. And I think Reeves right. took that pretty personally.
1: Yeah, I thought you were going to talk about. I thought you were going to talk about uh, spies. getting his own manager, which he did.
0: Oh, he did, huh?
1: He did, and so, like you said, you know, our manager isn't big time enough. I need a big time manager. Who could that be? Let me see. Oh, yeah, my sister. Yeah. She can manage me like nobody else. So yeah, once you get into that, it's like the, this. The ship is sinking pretty quick if we're not even close to
0: being on the same page anymore. Right, and obviously. They, they all should be rich and fat and happy, but Colin's probably a lot richer than the rest of them, right? Because he wrote, Correct. co-wrote every single song, basically. It's right. certainly every song you heard on the radio. So they got rid of their rhythm section, and then they're making their third album, Two Hearts, which comes out in April of 85. So 38 years, basically, ago. Two years since cargo and you know it's i feel like the time had passed a little bit people have had been sick of them at the end of 83 beginning of 84 now it's like okay now we're back Eh, and it's not the same and and the band you know who was kind of famous for making these quirky videos with all the different characters in the band you know reese never took his shades off and Spicer's kind of a a weirdo but but fun happy weirdo you know (laughs) Stryker kind of has that curly hair on top but now it's it's a little different you know and they go with collins song's as the singles. They don't really go anywhere. Marie is not a bad song. I think the first song, the first single may have gotten to the charts in America, but but nothing else did. They had four singles and I never really heard any of them, to be honest with you. Stryker left before they finished making the record. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're coming back, he's like, nah, I'm out. And that was it. That was the end of work in like 1984. I guess it's the the light that shines twice as bright, burns half as long kind of thing, yeah. you know? Yeah, and,
1: and, and it is tough when you... And somebody mentioned this on the on the documentary. It's not so much how you get to the, what happens when you get to the top. It's what happens when you you're at the top and then you fall off a little bit or in this case a lot. Like, how do you how do you come back from that or how do you handle that? And I think that was the problem for these guys is that, you know, they were on top of the world and then just people got sick of them. And then, then it you know, how do you deal with that backlash of everybody telling you you suck, including the record company? Hmm, I don't like any of this.
0: Yeah, it's, it's got to be tough. In, in, you know, spring or whatever of 81, you're playing clubs, you're playing like a bar with 100 people in there and, and putting 125 in makes it like, a you know, a fire hazard, you know, kind yeah. of thing. And then in 83, you're playing the Us Festival. Right. It's second top of the bill to 300,000 people. You're opening for Fleetwood Mac. You're winning Grammys. You're selling millions and millions of albums around the world. And suddenly, you know, it's like you're all in it together when you've got nothing. Suddenly, you've got some money and some fame and recognition. It's like, ah, I don't need all these people anymore, you know, right. kind of thing. Right, right, right. Common or, story or, there.
1: Yeah, or, you know, the person who's not writing the songs... You know, oh, well, I'm just as big of a part of this as everybody else. And I feel like I'm not getting recognized. And yeah, you have people like, I don't know your sister telling you, you should be, you know, you should be on the cover of Rolling Stone, not these other guys. Okay, all right. And then it just it's just a business model that can't it just can't sustain itself.
0: Yes, right. And so the guys get out, the Two Hearts album doesn't go anywhere. And then Greg leaves. Okay, well, that's the end of minute work. So so then Colin decided he's going to try to become a solo artist. Hey, he writes the songs, he sings the songs, he stars in the videos. I'll do that. But again, by 1987 and certainly by 1990, things had changed. And he wasn't himself. And I think he was drinking and doing drugs. And Mm -hmm. I I think that, you know, it, it wasn't a very good time in his life. I mean, he still had money rolling in from his men at work credits and stuff but it just wasn't the same and he went through some very hard times went through a divorce and all that kind of stuff but he ended up moving to la and he ended up starting to play acoustic shows just him not even with a band just him and he started to find himself again like who was he was he this international superstar on stage in front of thousands and thousands or was he just a great storyteller and a great songwriter who just needed to find the right format to get his stories across?
1: Right. And, and, and what is, he, he mentioned, you know, one of these things about how, what, what is your purpose in life? Like, what are you, what are you supposed to be doing? He said, this is it. Like, why do you keep touring? Because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to be out here singing these songs to these people. Yeah. He had, a, he had a great thing about how he's, he's at the Wilbur Theater, I think, in Boston on a Friday night. And, and you know, I have to say to myself, You know, is is this is this better than than, you know, when things were on the top? No, it's not. It's terrible. So he can kind of he can kind of make fun of himself because, you know, you you think he's going to say, you know, this is better because I connect with. No, I want to be in front of 100,000 people again. But it, what are you gonna do? You know that's never gonna happen again. And can you be okay with with doing this these one man shows? And I think he's got a he's got a new wife, or yeah, I mean, who I think encourages him and. They work well together, and he really just has found his place.
0: Well, and, you know, after his major label, you know, his two solo albums on MCA just didn't work out, didn't go anywhere in the late 80s, early 90s, he didn't just stop. You know, then he kind of formed his own independent Lazy Eye Records Mm -hmm. to, to release his own stuff, and he released four or five records on his own. He's still got songs to write. He's still got stories to tell. And he's not going to stop. So he, they maybe they don't sell through the charts, but he continues to put that new music out and he continues to perform it. Uh, and then he goes out in the 2000s, gets onto a small label, independent label, and makes five or six more records. He just mm-hmm. kind of keeps going. And then, yes, thanks to the folks at Scrubs, he gets on Scrubs. Not only does his music get on there, but he personally is on there performing them. And it takes off. And suddenly it's hip to know who Colin Hay. I always knew who Colin Hay was. If I'd ever seen him in a bar, like if he'd come around while we were in college, like Colin Hay, I would have gone to see him absolutely, yeah. you know, because yeah. I always knew who he was. But it was funny when he was telling a story, like he's in a bar or something, and a 20 year old walks into him, Oh man, I love your music. He's like, Oh, thanks, man, that's kind of you. And the 40 year old guy sitting next to him is like, You know who Yeah, You know who he is? It's like, Yeah, he's in Scrubs. Like, Scrubs, what the hell is Scrubs? He's in Men at Work. And the 20 year old's like, what the hell's meant at work? He was like, (laughs) he had no idea. And Colin's laughing about the whole thing. He's like, I'm sure that did happen at some point. You can see it happening, but that's how you get to a new audience. You know, you have this second life. Plus, Zach, I think, put one of his songs in Garden State, the movie he did with with Natalie Portman, and that soundtrack went platinum. So, you get your song on a platinum album again, that's awesome. You know, that, that helps, you know, and it helps people find you. So, he is really this kind of cool troubadour, and he has not lost his voice at all. He still has this great power and resonance. It's just him and his acoustic guitar. He doesn't have to sing over a bunch of other stuff, but he's still got it, man. It's And he just did a tour of uh, the West Coast uh, mm-hmm. acoustically that I would have loved to have seen him. I don't know if he strays too far from home these days anymore because he does live out in, in Southern California. But you can call him a flash in the pan, but I think it's a real success story because he made all these great songs that took the world by storm for a couple of years. Maybe that part was over pretty quickly, but he continued to do his thing. He continued to perform in front of people, and he does it with a smile on his face. Mm-hmm. That, to me, is a, is a success story, if you ask me.
1: Yeah, and, and I'm glad. I didn't know about all of the, uh, the troubles that he had as far as like, drugs and alcohol, but I'm glad that he got through that and realized that you know, there was still a, a market or an audience for his songs, because they are it, it, when you strip it down to just the acoustic guitar, then it has to be a lot more of the the words that are coming out. Um, and so, yeah, you're right; they are stories that he tells. And to hear him do Overkill just acoustically, I remember when I don't know if I saw it when it first came out, maybe on a rerun, and said, "Hey, I know that song, uh-huh. and that sounds really good like that without the without the sax and everything else, just stripping it down. It's it's a really it's a really good song to play acoustically.
0: When I saw that Colin Hay, Waiting for My Real Life documentary, whatever you want to call it, mm-hmm. five or six years ago, I uh-huh. hadn't ever watched Scrubs. But then we have this thing called the pandemic and suddenly I'm stuck at home <laughs> and I got to watch a lot of stuff. I, I got caught up on a lot of TV during the pandemic and Scrubs was one of them. I basically watched every single one and yeah. I was so psyched to, to see the ones that he was in, you know, and, and performing that song and, interacting with zach and the cast and stuff I'm like that's really cool another thing i didn't know until i'd seen that documentary was the lawsuit around down under yeah uh, and this is just a really sad story so like in 2009 there's a quiz show like a music themed quiz show called spicks and Specks where they play a little bit of a song and they ask you questions about it they play down under they say who's playing this and what nursery which kids nursery rhyme is it based off of it's like well it's obviously meant it at work and greg ham's playing the flute there. like yeah But it was based on this song, Kookaburra. Well, I listened to Kookaburra, which was, it came out in the 30s. And it's a kid's song. You know, it's very Australian. You can hear a little bit of the flute bit in there. So the people, and Music Publishing, who had bought the song for like $6,000 or something like that, they decided to sue Men at Work, basically Colin Hay and Ron Stryker, for 60% of the publishing. And it went on for years. And they're really just kind of suing that flute part, which is... It's kind of a signature part of the song. But look, when it comes to music copyrights, it's 50% melody and 50% lyrics. Mm-hmm. And everything else is just arrangement. So you can't really sue over arrangement. And so there, you know, it's kind of like this is where the law of music and the arts don't really fit together very well. Yes, you can tell there's a little bit of a sound in there to it. But again, that's just arrangement. It's like, you know, the, the people who sue over Stairway to Heaven, like, no, that's part of a song that we had. and We toured with them. So yeah. Look, it's melody and lyrics, and that's it. So they were suing for 60%. The judge gave them 5%, which basically added up to $100,000. So they spent $4.5 million on lawyers to get $100,000. And I guess 5% in perpetuity going forward. And I think it pissed Colin off, but I think it hurt Greg Hamm very, very badly. Because that was what he added to the song.
1: Yeah, and I think he, yes, he. that was one of the things that he mentioned. Unfortunately, he passed away from a, I think, from a heart attack. But he remember. was
0: doing drugs, they think. They they were concerned right. he may have been on heroin and just took it very badly. Like, this is how I'm going to be remembered. So ripped off this right. kitty trap, which, which I don't remember that way.
1: I don't remember either. And it's funny how it took him you know, from 1981 until 2009 to figure that out. Yeah. Okay. Can't be that big of a deal. And the other thing too is, I mean, if it, if it really is that much of a part of the culture, I'm sure when Ham was doing that, it was just a, it was kind of something that he always remembered in his head or, you know, it was floating around. It's very Australian. Mm-hmm. It, it kind of ties it back to the home country. I, I would have a hard time believing that he directly ripped that off on purpose. It was just, cause I remember Joe Walsh said that one time, what's the hardest part about writing a song and he said it's writing something where you know you you kind of start playing it and you're like oh wait a minute that's a Jimi Hendrix song, mm-hmm. like you you thought of something in your head and after a while you kind of forget where it came from it's just in there somewhere so I think that was the deal with him I don't I don't really think he was trying to rip anybody off and to think that that's what ultimately killed him is very sad
0: yeah it is sad you know and I if I was his estate in Colin Hay I would sue the producers of Spicks and Specks because. No one had ever said that for 25 mm-hmm. years. The song being out, no one had ever brought that up. I and mean, they said, "No, that's where they got it from." They said it on the show, and this was like, "Oh, oh hey, we owe that that's what, no money. Should yeah. we sue? Them? Yeah, let's let's go get yeah. our money. let That's a big deal. That's ours. It's not theirs. Four and a half million dollars to win a hundred thousand to ruin Greg's life and to take money out of artists who made new music that have made the world happy, propelled you to America's Cup victory." Yeah. <laughs> That sucks, dude. I and mean, that, and I don't
1: I don't want to say put Australia on the map cuz obviously it had been there for a while but I definitely think in America that was our that was our first window into uh into Australia and thinking about them seeing, you know, the country, maybe that Mad Max, but th- to me that was that was my first intro into thinking about Australia and getting to know them.
0: That's right. Made them very accessible. Mhm. Fun music. It's it's the theme song for Australia, right? I mean, they right. played it at the Olympics or whatever. Correct. Uh, so, yes. yeah, I mean, you know, to do something nasty, I, I you know, it, it's not cool. But the great part was, he's like, I was playing it in South America with a band in front of like 20,000 people. Huge crowd. <laughs> and they're all singing along. And there's people dancing on stage. It's like, maybe they get a little money. But they can't touch what I have yeah. with this song, you know, this is special. I'm like, Yeah, that's damn right, you know. Musician music belongs to the musicians who create it and to the people who love it, mm-hmm. and not to the corporate assholes who just wanna line their pockets from
1: it. Exactly right.
0: Well, that wraps show number 126 on Men it Works Cargo as it celebrates its 40th anniversary this year, and I gotta tell you folks, I had a really good time revisiting these songs. It just took me back to a time and a place when I was like 9, 10, 11 years old, just starting to learn about music, getting into MTV, buying my first cassettes, getting my first boombox, just being enchanted by this world through the television that can really take you anywhere, whether it's... Duran Duran taking you to Antigua or to the Far East, or David Bowie taking you to Australia. And then these guys, men at work, were fun, they were quirky, and they had great tunes that were perfect for the soundtrack of 1982, 1983 in America, perfect for MTV, and a lot of fun. And I'm glad that I found that Colin Hay is still alive and well, doing his thing still, still moving forward, still playing his songs, still performing, still writing new songs and recording just seems like a great guy who deserved success. And I don't mean necessarily worldwide huge financial success, but success as an artist where he continues to do his thing, gets recognition, and leads a good life from what I see. So good for him. And I thank you all for going on this journey. Look, if you're looking for another Van Halen episode or another Pink Floyd or Marillion or some of the stuff that's been very popular with us lately, I hope that you enjoyed this one because it was a lot of fun for us to do. But as usual, now we want to know, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? You have got to let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You can also tweet us and DM us at Ugly underscore Werewolf or at ActionJack72. Let us know the bands, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the rock properties you want us to review. And we thank the folks at Pantheon Podcast for making us a part of their family. We, of course, thank the amazing folks at rarevinyl.com, where if you use the code podcast, you can save 10% off your orders. I noticed there were some cool Men at Work picture discs in their inventory. So if you're a big Men at Work fan, you might want to check that out. Now, the Wolf is on his way back to Amsterdam, back to where he used to live, because he is going to the first two nights of this amazing 72 seasons, two nights in town, no repeated songs for Metallica here. And I'm really very excited about it. Not necessarily excited about the long plane ride over, but I'm excited to be back in Amsterdam. Excited to see Metallica for the first time in four years. Excited to see this new music and to see some new bands. You know, um, I've never seen Mammoth with Wolfie Van Halen before. They're going to be one of the opening acts. In fact, there's two different opening acts each night. So it's not only a totally new set list for Metallica, but it's two different pans on each night as well. Should be fun. And I'm going to get you some updates. Check us out on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. You'll be able to see some of my photos and videos, even though my phone's not great. I will try to keep you clued in while I'm there. So until next time, to all of you rock and rollers all around the world, be cool and stay safe.